are here at the 11FS office in WeWork Devonshire Square for episode 76 of Blockchain Insider. And today we have a very special interview, and very special indeed, but I'm joined before we get to that interview by the one and only Colin G. Platt. Colin G. Platt, how are you, sir? I'm doing just fantastic today. Uh, so we talked to Vitalik last week, and uh, this is that unedited, unscripted, director's cut edition of that interview. How did you feel it went? Uh, we need director's cuts. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, it, went, it was a really interesting conversation with Vitalik. Um, he's a smart guy. Uh, I think everybody's going to be really interested to hear what he has to say. And uh, hopefully they learn something. And, and I look forward to uh, seeing how some of his predictions pan out. I know that you had some predictions on top of his. Yeah, so we cover some 2019 predictions with Vitalik. Uh, he goes into some basic explainers of uh, proof of stake versus proof of work. Uh, what are the second layer scaling solutions? How's sharding coming along? What's, what's he doing? And how might Ethereum decentralize itself from Vitalik or decentralizing Ethereum? That was an interesting uh, interesting chat as well. It's a geeky one, so I imagine a lot of listeners are going to be doing lots of Googling as they go through it and listening to it two or three times. Yeah, although Vitalik does a good job of explaining, but health warning, um, if he does get a bit nerdy, um, don't be shy about skipping back 10 seconds and then uh, Googling the thing he said. Uh, we'll, come, we'll follow up with a lot more explainer episodes soon, but should we just get to the interview? Let's do it. All right, here it is. Welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor. I'm joined, as always, by Colin G. Platt. Colin G. Platt, how are you? Doing very well, thanks. How are you guys? Uh, there's also somebody else, if you're watching the video, that you may see in the room with me that's not on a laptop, but is here in person. The one and only Vitalik Buterin. Vitalik, how are you, sir? I'm good, too. What a coincidence. <laughs> how about that? What a, what a strange coincidence. So for people who live under a rock and haven't heard of your good self, uh, just remind us briefly the Ethereum project, Vitalik, and your history from Bitcoin Magazine to, to there. Uh, sure. So I've been in the uh, crypto space uh, since before it was called the crypto space. Uh, back when I first uh, heard of Bitcoin in 2011, it was really just Bitcoin. And I found out about this thing on the internet. I started getting involved in the Bitcoin community. First as a writer, I uh, co-founded Bitcoin Magazine and then uh, started, did a lot of uh, developments on the Bitcoin projects initially. And then about two and a half years um, after that, I came up with this idea for how to make a blockchain that is more general purpose. And uh, the, the ideas from that uh, quickly turned into this a new platform called Ethereum, which is what I've been working on ever since. Excellent stuff already. Um, and as a quick reminder as well, um, we've kind of come a long way in the last year. 2018 has been an interesting year. Um, so what have you seen have been, if you were to look back over the last 12 months, what do you think have been the key insights? We've obviously gone into you know, price correction. And I do recall you putting out tweets when we we're at sort of the peak sort of saying, you know, we've created a billion in valuation and billions here and, and even half a trillion at one point. Have we really delivered anything? Do you think that's a natural force? And, and where do you think we're at in the markets? And I think like speculative bubbles and even outside of financial context, kind of hype exceeding reality is something that's just inevitable as a matter of like kind of both human mass psychology and just kind of micro incentives in terms of you know wanting to talk about the things that people get excited about because that's just how you have good conversations and things like that multiplied by millions of people. Yep. So it's. Uh, difficult to uh, av avoid, you know, having ups. And then when people realize that their ups haven't been satisfied, it's difficult to avoid the downs. Yeah. Um, the nice thing about the year, I think, is that like, the downs are, you know, on the one hand, definitely a time of despair for some people. But at the same time, it's also a good time for the community to have a chance to kind of clean up for a lot of real work to get done. Mm -hmm for uh, technology to kind of keep on quietly progressing, for people who kind of are there for the long term and understand uh, what the space is really about, uh, to see that the technology is continuing to progress. And I think uh, we have seen a lot of progress um, on the kind of base layer technical front. And I mean, you can talk more at some point about you know, Casper and sharding and Plasma and all of those things. Uh, there's been progress on applications, and uh, that includes both kind of the more purist sort of uh, fully decentralized uh, kind of consumer applications also includes uh, some of the enterprise stuff. There has been a lot of progress in just uh, the ecosystem and infrastructure evolving. So 
I think, you know, in general, there's uh, quite a bit of uh, good news beneath the surface. That's great to hear. So, like, let's dive into some of that stuff, because Ethereum, as delivered, was, as we know, a proof-of-work chain, uh, and that got it to where it needs to be. But there is, of course, the, the big question about uh, you know, the Casper uh, kind of initiative and project where you would always shift it, and I think it was always a stated goal to get it to proof-of-stake, but there was always the, the questions and threats about whether or not you could do that at scale and would that maintain. Um, so... Talk to me, uh, again, for, for the layperson, what is that shift realistically? And then let's drill into some of the specifics about where we're at. Sure. So um, I guess just as an introduction, proof of stake is a, a different kind of a consensus mechanism to proof of work. So proof of work is a way in which the uh, computers that make, make up the uh, Bitcoin network and the Ethereum network and many other crypto networks kind of talk to each other and agree on what messages to process in what order. And uh, the way proof of work, you can think of it as a yeah, kind of sort of voting mechanism where, you know, one unit of computing power, one vote. Like that's a huge oversimplification, but it's kind of an OK way to think about it. Proof of stake replaces that with like, essentially one coin inside of the system equals one vote. And uh, these two mechanisms are kind of similar because they both use economic resources to uh, gatekeep uh, what level of participation you can have in uh, the network. And that's something which is necessary because if you don't have that kind of economic gatekeeping, then one participant can just pretend to be a billion fake participants mm -hmm. and then take over the entire network. And proof of work does that. Uh, proof of stake does that, in our opinion, better for a couple of reasons. One of them is that with proof of work, in order to prove that you actually have these, uh, this computing power, you have to basically turn on these computers and have them solve mathematical puzzles 24-7, and this leads to a huge amount of uh, energy consumption. And I think Bitcoin is uh, at the point of exceeding probably the majority of the world's countries, and Ethereum is... Uh, Definitely uh, not nearly at that point, but it's still you know, much higher than uh, I would like it to be. And uh, proof of stake um, is much more efficient because instead of uh, proving that you have computers by using them 24-7, to prove that you have coins, you just need to basically sign a digital signature with the same uh, cryptographic key that has those coins. And so the network can run with like much lower energy consumption to the point where the main thing that you're wasting is just the fact that you have these end of 10,000 nodes that all need to verify every transaction, which is much less. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Colin, you had a follow-up. So, yeah, I had a question on, on proof of stake. I think it's a really interesting idea. One of the things I'd like to understand is, um, do we have any good examples of where proof of stake, either in a blockchain system or outside of a blockchain system, has really worked so far? Or is this all an experiment at this stage? There have been simpler versions of proof of stake that have worked. So, for example, even back in 2011, there was a cryptocurrency called PureCoin that was released. And there was something called NXT in 2013. Um, there, in Tezos is uh, using uh, proof of stake, and they did like some kind of initial release fairly recently. Um, there, there are a couple of others. Um, it, ac it actually is fairly popular, but the kinds of uh, versions of proof of stake that have been out so far are fairly simplistic. And the one that we plan on launching with is uh, kind of much more powerful in a lot of ways. So let's dive into that. What is the one you plan on launching and how is it different from the simplistic ones that we would have expected to see? Sure. So sim the simplistic versions of proof of stake basically replicate the structure of a proof of work blockchain. They just replace the uh, randomness of the mathematical puzzles that people solve with computers with randomness that sort of gets virtually simulated inside of the blockchain. So you still have a structure where you get a block and then a block on top of a block, then a block on top of a block, some time between blocks. And that kind of structure is nice because it's very simple and very low overhead, but it's um, also uh, terrible because it takes um, a long time for blocks to come to consensus. The eventual consistency. Yeah, like basically, like in Bitcoin, for example, you know, there's this idea of waiting for six confirmations, and that's like an hour to confirm a transaction. And you know, proof of stake chains that work in a similar way like basically inherit those weaknesses. Our approach to proof of stake combines together some of the um, insights from these older chain-based schools of proof-of-stake with uh, Byzantine fault tolerance theory, which is a uh, branch of uh, mathematics that has existed for about 35 years that 
focuses on this question of, well, if you have some number of computers, then how do you get them to kind of quickly agree on data, even if some of those computers have been hacked or go offline or something happens to them? And uh, now, that kind of consensus uh, was originally designed uh, in the context of uh, um, a setting where you know ahead of time that these are the 15 people participating, and so you just give one of them a kind of participation token and everyone knows who all the participants are. Yes. But, and that's why you can't just uh, directly transplant that into a uh, open public network setting, and that's why Satoshi went over to proof of work initially. Um, but our idea is to take those algorithms and First of all, um, kind of merged them together with proof of stake. And second, we came up with an algorithm that has some intermediate properties uh, between the properties of these um, older BFT algorithms and chain-based proof of stake. So the problem with the older BFT algorithms is that they're designed for like 15 computers. And so if you try to run them with 50,000 computers, you need like extremely powerful computers that uh, you, know, you basically, the only people who would run nodes are like Google. <laughs> so um, in um, our case, uh, we have a version of this algorithm that takes longer to come to kind of final consensus, mm -hmm. but still not too long. And even before it comes to final consensus, it kind of interweaves this uh, BFT style of consensus together with a kind of chain-based style of consensus, but also not kind of not chain-based. <laughs> and the benefit that this gives you is that within something like five seconds, you get a sort of soft agreement that this block is probably part of the history forever. And then in a couple of minutes, that soft agreement upgrades to a final finality and it's not going back. Interesting. If, if any of you are familiar with the world of payments, uh, with Visa, you get auths and settlement, right? When you go to make a payment, you, the thing that happens when you go to pay with your card is Visa says, ah, oh, yes, there's money in this account. The money doesn't actually move till a day later. That's actually similar, but what you're saying is it's happening on a much more compressed time frame for, mm -hmm. for that network. Yeah. Interesting idea. All right, um, Colin, any further follow-ups on that point? So, so one of the things that I thought was really interesting in a discussion that I've heard over the last couple of months in the Ethereum community is, is a notion of economic abstraction. Um, so being able to use multiple different kinds of coins or assets to, to pay fees rather than having to go through only Ether. Can that exist in, in a proof of stake or in a Casper uh, type setup? So proof of stake does inherently require there to be one uh, enshrined or a privileged currency in the network because he needs to have one currency that the proof of stake deposits are in. Right. Um, and there are reasons why in some cases you might want to enshrine one particular cryptocurrency further. So one example of this is that there are benefits in some cases to having a model of transaction fees where instead of uh, the miner deciding what to accept and you deciding how much to pay, there's uh, some fixed fee that might be adjusted by some mechanism, but it's a fee that the protocol chooses and where the coins actually just get eaten up by the protocol. Yeah. And if you want to do things like that, you need to have one particular currency that those fees are eliminated in. That said, we definitely recognize the yeah, usefulness of uh, economic abstraction as a... Yeah, uh, thing that is uh, good for usability and uh, good for making applications more accessible and so forth. But I think there are many ways to achieve this goal. So more recently, we've been kind of bigger and bigger fans of this kind of layer two approach to design, where we make the base layer of a blockchain both reasonably simple, but also maximally general, so that if you want to build these more specific features on top, you can build them like basically as uh, software libraries or systems of smart contracts that just sit on top of the blockchain. Interesting. Uh, so the, that second layer gives you the space to be able to uh, kind of do, do all of those abstractions in a completely mm -hmm. different way, whilst the general layer underneath that is doing the, the, the kind of the general stuff. Exactly. It's, it makes a lot of sense to me, and it kind of hints at um, those last two things that we've been talking about historically, those, those uh, technologies. You know, Plasma and Raiden are often brought up as, as potentials in that space, and we also get into sharding. Just walk me through what those technologies are and, um, and where they fit within that stack. 
Sure, so sharding is a base layer upgrade, so it's an upgrade to the blockchain itself. Yes, it is. And what sharding does is it uh, changes the structure of the blockchain so that instead of every single computer in the network needing to download and verify literally all of the data that anyone sends, you break up the data into uh, uh, shards, so basically pieces, and some small random selection of nodes uh, verify each individual piece of data. And the purpose of this is um, essentially that it allows you to still have the whole chain be verified, but at the same time, uh, do not require any individual node to process more than you know maybe one over five hundredth of uh, the entire data that's being processed by the chain. And so you increase the scalability of the entire system by a factor of uh, maybe something like five hundred. But is there a trade-off there in terms of the overall security, or is that um, you know, where is that trade-off? There definitely are trade-offs, but the good news is that there is not any kind of trade-off that says security goes down by a factor of 500. Right. Like, there are more naive designs that people have thought of before where it actually is the case that if uh, each node only needs to process 1 over 500 of the data, that means that if you break 1 over 500 of the network, you can break one of the chains. But the more recent designs use uh, multiple layers of defense. Like One of them is a yeah, random sampling mechanism that right, yeah. um, basically means that if uh, you are an attacker, you don't know ahead of time which nodes will have to verify what data, so you don't know which nodes to uh, take over or attack or become in order to attack a particular part of the chain. I see. Um, there's also something called data availability proofs, uh, fraud proofs, uh, proofs of custody. So these uh, different strategies together that actually do mean that the amount of security that you're losing from this design uh, is, still exists. Be, in, in large part just uh, because it is a significant gain in complexity, but it's yeah. uh, definitely not a kind of massive decrease in security that'll make the chain vulnerable. Are you guys testing that, I guess, on a test net? And what have you seen in terms of the, the gains and, and some of those trade-offs? Because, I mean, until this is put out to the public, a lot of it is unknown, right? I mean, you guys learn so much every time you do a release with Frontier, you suddenly see all of the things you didn't think of. Is that a concern going into a lot of this stuff is definitely still theoretical, so the test nets are fairly far along in development, but so far the testing has focused much more on the proof-of-stake side than the scalability side. And our intention is to release the proof-of-stake part before the sharding part, yeah. um, because uh, we want to have a period which um, is kind of like an early test where the chain is theoretically running, um, and it, you get to test to make sure that the proof-of-stake parts are all actually working, sure. um, and, but also at the same time, it's kind of a real-life economic test where the economics of proof-of-stake are being tested because it's people's actual deposits and money are at stake. Oh, well, so then you're just testing that, you're not testing that plus shorting and introducing exactly. additional so, risk. Yeah, so the point is that we would launch the proof-of-stake part first, and because with the proof-of-stake part there's not going to be much activity connected to the chain, it's not even that bad if it breaks, and so we can afford to do more testing earlier, and then when things stabilize a little more, we'll push sharding out. And, you know, we'll continue actually uh, implementing and testing the uh, sharding itself in parallel to all of that. Indeed, that yeah. makes complete sense. Sharding is um, definitely a challenge on, in implementation in multiple ways. I think one of the big ones is that you do need to use fairly novel kinds of peer-to-peer -peer networks because the peer-to-peer -peer networks used in Bitcoin, Ethereum, basically every blockchain and cryptocurrency so far or tend to be gossip networks, so yeah. they rely on this assumption that every node broadcasts something that everyone downloads, but that's yeah. just fundamentally incompatible with the sharding approach to scalability, and so there's a uh, kind of go back to square one moment. Interesting. It is something that our peer-to-peer uh, -peer network researchers are fairly far along in uh, figuring out the solution we're going to use. But it's going to be an interesting challenge for sure. Colin, any follow-ups on this one? Yeah, so it's it's kind of a general question on security, be it sharding proof of stake or, or proof of work as it exists. In your opinion, is there kind of a, a maximum required amount of security, if we called it level X, that going beyond it really just never makes any sense? Or do you think it's a sliding scale? There is definitely a sliding scale. There are specific points on the scale that are worth highlighting. So for example, 
if the number of uh, nodes that on average validate a particular piece of data drops below somewhere between 100 and 200, then you get a risk uh, that an attacker with a relatively small share of the network will be able to just corrupt specific pieces of data by random chance. Okay, yeah. Um, there's also uh, the risk that if a particular piece of data is stored by only a few hundred nodes, then it will happen that at some point there's one piece of data that literally everyone forgets and then it's unrecoverable. So there is definitely, in my opinion, a natural kind of floor to the extent to which we can get the inefficiencies down, at least at base layer. Yeah. And somewhere between a factor of 100 and a factor of a few thousand seems to be where that floor is. Interesting. Mm. So, And then uh, on the top end, is there an alternative to, to that? Is there a side at which it becomes so inefficient or is actually um, the idea is that it has to be a world computer? This is called Bitcoin and Ethereum 1.0 yes. and all these other systems that exist today. So yeah, that's fair. Um, so then speaking of the kind of the base layer and then moving up to layer two, um, there's there's a couple of layer two technologies out there. Of course, Bitcoin has its own with the Lightning Network, um, and there are a lot of uh, different discussions about you know the pros and cons of layer twos. So let's define layer two, talk about pros and cons of the concept of layer two solutions, and then talk about the Ethereum specific ones. Sure. So. The general idea behind layer twos is that instead of trying to scale the blockchain itself, you change the way that applications that use the blockchain are designed so that instead of shoving literally every single interaction between them and applications users onto the blockchain, they try to make interactions happen between users directly first and then only um, push data to the blockchain in the event that there is either a dispute or some kind of failure on the part of one of the participants, or you want to exit the system and possibly switch to a different layer two. So the uh, simplest uh, mechanism to explain is probably payment channels. And like, we could even go through payment channels. That's a fairly an illustrative example. So. Let's suppose, for example, that I'm trying to sell you an internet connection. Yeah. So I have a phone, it's connected to some cellular network. You have a phone, it's connected to nothing. You want to borrow my data at the cost of four cents a megabyte. Then we connect to each other. Um, you put, let's say, $5 into a channel. And then a channel is a smart contract. So you put the $5 in. Yeah. And by default, you have the right to just take the $5 out at some point later at any time. Um, now, then if he wants to pay me for one megabyte, so I do one megabyte of data, um, instead of you publishing a transaction on-chain, you sign a ticket. So you sign a message off-chain yeah. that basically says, all right, I agree that I have now given up four cents, sign Simon. And you send this to me and now I have it. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to pay for another megabyte, then you sign another message. And the second message says, I now agree that I have... Uh, been willing to give up eight cents. And then you sign a third message says, I'm now willing to give up 12 cents. Yes. And the rules of the smart contract say that either of us can start and exit from a channel. And then after that, there is some period of time during which either of us has the ability to submit messages. And the message that um, has the highest sequence number attached, so basically the message that is the latest, is the message that wins. And so if I have a ticket that says I received $2 from you, then I myself know that within this period of uh, time within which either of us can send messages, I can send the $2 into a channel, yeah. and I know I'll be able to get the $2. And so the clever uh, trick that's being done here from an economic perspective is that even though the base layer itself is not being modified every time we send a message, but the base layer implements this kind of game and the equilibrium of the game, the outcome that both of us know will happen from the game were we to decide to play it, does change and it changes as a result of us uh, gaining access to messages that the other, um, other of us has, has signed um, offline. So if I was to describe it as being netting but for the network, would that be yeah, um, yeah. a clumsy analogy or no, reasonably? Netting is definitely a great analogy for this. Yeah. But in the general principle here, right, is that you try to just do stuff off of the blockchain yeah. and only when, you know, there's, like for example, I just randomly go offline or you decide that you want to take back your money but you try to claim you only paid four cents or something happens like yeah. that, then you appeal to the blockchain. and. Plasma is a different style of construction, but it uses very similar principles. 
Interesting. I, I like the idea of appealing to the blockchain. That's um, that's going to be like it, it appeals court and appealing to Ethereum. Yeah, the, that's definitely one of uh, Joe, Joseph Boone's favorite analogies. Yeah, I, I really enjoy it, and I think uh, kind of flipping that on its head as well. Like when I start thinking about netting for the whole planet, that starts to get really interesting because netting typically requires financial institutions, a lot of cost and intermediaries. Whereas actually, if uh, the whole planet can net off, the efficiencies could be could be yeah. really huge. It is worth noting that channels in particular do have uh, capital inefficiencies like, b because like, especially once you start talking about these uh, networks of payment channels and then uh, I have a channel to you that has five dollars in and I have a channel to someone else that has five dollars. That and five dollars is committed to that channel. Exactly so I, uh, I have five dollars $5 that's committed to each of these channels and then when you start talking about networks that get kind of routed through multiple channels then the amount of money that needs to be locked up for certain types of payments to be possible is uh, fairly high. Yes. And Plasma actually does score better on that scale, but Plasma has the disadvantage that um, in Plasma confirmations are not instant. So when a channel confirmations are instant, because as soon as I receive a payment message from you, I know that I'll be able to shove it into a smart contract, yes. so I immediately know that I theoretically have the money. But in a Plasma system, you have to... Uh, wait until a commitment to a, to a lot of pieces of data gets published on chain. Yeah, I see. So Plasma has a better capital efficiency. It needs to lock up less money for it to work. But on the other hand, it's, uh, it has this slower confirmation time. Let's just step back and define Plasma as well for, for listeners who aren't familiar and then jump to Colin on capital efficiency because I know that's a, a point that's key for him. Sure. Uh, so... The way that Plasma works is uh, kind of like this. So suppose you have a, a Plasma chain that has some single operator. So let's say I'm the operator and I have a lot of users. And there's uh, also um, many separate kind of coins that I'm keeping, tra uh, keeping track of or that the Plasma chain is keeping track of. And for uh, simplicity, you can think of, say, a thousand coins as being a thousand separate objects. So on the actual ledger, on the on on chain, these uh, thousand coins are all controlled by the Plasma smart contract. And what happens is um, that it, the, there exists some kind of uh, kind of mapping of ownership based on these messages signed off chain that says that you know you have this coin, someone else has this other coin, someone else has this third coin, and if you want to send your coin to someone else you send a transaction that does that. Yeah. And then every 15 seconds or minute or some interval of time, I take everyone's transactions that were submitted um, basically since the last time I made a commitment, and I uh, put these transactions together and make a cryptographic commitment to them. So for more technical people, basically, and you make a Merkle tree, you publish the Merkle root on chain. Yeah. But what this uh, means to a kind of technical layman is that I am uh, publishing a kind of piece of cryptographic data on chain where the piece of cryptographic data is very small, but I can use that piece of cryptographic data later to prove to anyone that some particular transaction was included. Yes. Or I can also use it to prove that for some particular coin, so say for coin number 193, no transaction was included at that particular time. Yes. And so what you can do is that if you want to check that you actually have coin number 193, you ask the Plasma operator for the entire history for coin 193. Yeah. So for all of these Merkle branches, for all these cryptographic proofs that say at every interval what happens to coin 193. Sure. And if the Merkle branches say, step one, Alice deposited it, step two, three, four, five, nothing happened, step six, Alice gave it to Bob, step seven, eight, nine, nothing happened, step 10, Bob gave it to you, step 11, 12, 13, nothing happened, then that information convinces you that you have the coin. And then if he wants to actually withdraw the coin, then what you do is you can take the Merkle branch, this proof of this uh, transaction, and you can submit it on chain, then you can wait, and there's some period of time where someone can challenge you with a newer proof that says, oh, now they actually have the coin, yeah. and if the, no one uh, challenges you, then at some point you can get the coin out. Interesting, and makes a lot of sense. Uh, Colin, any follow-ups? Yeah, so I guess my question kind of follows on this and goes back to the, the netting aspect and, and capital efficiency. One of the things that we have in traditional financial markets is the idea of um, a central clearing counterparty or just a, a bank doing derivatives clearing. 
I, I wonder, so the system you describe in a payment channel is I want to send you five coins. I don't have a channel with you. I have a channel with Simon and Simon happens to have five coins. I can send him five coins and he passes on to you. And that happens near instantaneously. Um, there may be an issue though, where I need to pass you five coins every day for the next five years. And Simon doesn't have that amount of money today to do it. Um, but we could introduce some kind of fourth entity that would say, right, if Simon doesn't pass you those coins, I will make sure you get those coins. Um, and that becomes kind of a clearing house. And I need to keep some money with him. Simon needs to keep some money with him. Maybe you do as well. Do you see something like that, whether it's centrally or decentralized, uh, emerging or already emerged? I think things like that can totally, yeah, d definitely happen. And it's the one thing that's probably worth keeping in mind is that the kind of public blockchain cryptocurrency ecosystem probably can't support kind of actual debt very well. So we can't support the idea that, you know, I'm going to promise to pay you these coins uh, for, the, for the next five years and there's some uh, me mechanism that'll either insure you or do something to me if I don't pay up because uh, basically participants are just anonymous and can disappear at any time. Yes. And that I think is the key reason why so many things in public blockchains, instead of relying on identity-based penalties, rely on these financial penalties um, yes. in the form of uh, cryptocurrency that gets deposited into smart contracts that can then take those deposits away as a penalty if they prove that you did something wrong. Yes, interesting. Um, and I guess that um, kind of leads us to that blurring line between the world of like the enterprise blockchain mm -hmm. and DLT mm -hmm. and the kind of the public blockchain world. How, do you see those two worlds coexisting or is it kind of an either or? I'd say definitely coexisting. I'd say yeah, there's definitely many places where enterprises can benefit from uh, data going onto the blockchain. Um, one important thing to keep in mind is that pretty much any mechanism on a public blockchain that can work using uh, financial penalties to incentivize people can also work if you assume that there are going to be social penalties to um, penalize people who misbehave. If you can gatekeep the participants and make sure that those participants actually are vulnerable to whatever your social sanctions are. And that is something that basically you can do because in order to financially penalize someone you need to prove that they did something wrong but yes. then with a blockchain like if you if you prove that you did something wrong you can just publish the proof and then yeah. that published proof is what can be used to apply whatever the social sanction is I think we agree that this sequence of events did and did indeed occur mm -hmm. then makes it much easier to move on to the mm -hmm. like so what should we do about it piece exactly yeah I mean there are plenty of cases where public blockchains can be used as a kind of tool um, for different kinds of mechanisms to use. And similar to how you would use cryptography, except having uh, different use cases to cryptography. And that's something that you can use even if, for example, you're totally not interested in using cryptocurrencies for financial incentives. So I can just go through one very simple example. Please do, yeah. So let's suppose that I'm running an auction and let's say I have this cup of tea, and uh, because this cup of tea is such a wonderful work of art, it has 1-1-FS on it. <laughs> um, there's a, a bunch of people that are willing to pay thousands of dollars for it, and you, know, you have an auction, right? So one of the kind of fairly standard types of auction is what's called a second price auction, where whoever bids the most wins, but they pay as much as the second highest bidder. Yes. And this kind of auction is uh, generally considered superior by economists uh, because like, b basically you don't really need very complex strategies to figure out how you should bid. You just basically bid the maximum amount that you would be willing to pay for the item and if you get it, you know, or you bid that amount, and then if you win, you know that you'll have to pay less than that amount, and if you lose, you know that, well, you, had you won, you would have had to pay more anyway. Than you were willing uh, to. Yeah. yeah, so the problem is, though, that with this kind of auction, you can cheat fairly easily if you're the operator, right? Yeah. So suppose, for example, three people in, um, bid in this auction. One of them bids 100 uh, pounds, one bids 200 pounds, one bids 500 pounds, yeah. and... I, as the operator, see these three bids, and I know that the outcome looks like it'll be the person with 500, uh, who bid 500 pounds wins, and they'll have to pay 200. Now, I'm colluding with the person selling the cup, in this case, because I am selling the cup, <laughs> and um, I insert my own bid for 499 pounds. 
and I can do this because I see what these existing bids are. Yes. And so I can insert this bid and uh, now the same person wins, but instead of having to pay 200, they have to pay you 499. Pay yeah. So the way that you can theoretically solve something like this with a blockchain is you split the auction up into two stages where in stage one, everyone uh, publishes a commitment to their bid. So everyone publishes the hash of their bid on chain. And then during that stage, no one sees the bids. Then end. Then stage two, everyone reveals the bids. And once people start revealing the bids, well, you can't uh, submit uh, any more commitments because that stage already ended. And yeah. so I don't have this ability to uh, uh, kind of cheat you out of the, those $299. And that would include the operator as well. Colin, any thoughts on that one? No, I think it's it's an interesting method of looking at stuff. Um, and I guess the question that I always have with auctions, and I, w I was reading your your Radical Markets uh, paper review as well. It's it's interesting when you start to look at, at how stock exchanges work, and even inside of those, there's lots of different auctions and different types of markets. I'm I'm wondering in this is given that you have to kind of wait for batches in kind of a continuous auction model. Um, is there is there not something where you can more or less run a decentralized limit order book of some sort? to achieve the same effect? Well, it depends, I guess, on what your use case is. Like in this case, I'm literally talking about an auction where you're selling a cup, and so you want to have like a two-week period so people can learn about it and figure out what their bid is and so forth. Yeah. And there definitely are rationales for running um, th things like um, order books on some kind of chain. Yeah. Like, there has fairly recently been this uh, kind of movements toward frequent batch auctions because they uh, and basically give you um, a lot of uh, benefit in terms of removing the high frequency trading arms race um, at a fairly low cost because like you lose kind of a few seconds of information efficiency, but that's not really all that bad. And that's something that could even be, for example, very useful for cryptocurrency exchanges. And yeah. I know there are projects that are trying to do that. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So, but regardless of what specific mechanism that you're using, unless you want the mechanism to kind of finish on such a short time scale that blockchains are too difficult to use, like in those cases, and the thing that I described probably doesn't work well, but in other situations, that's like totally an improvement to just add these blockchain commitments on because that just strictly reduces the set of ways in which you can cheat people. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to move us on because uh, I think there's uh, there's so much we could dive into on that piece. Um, but I really wanted to get on to, whilst we're um, removing centralized actors from auctions, mm -hmm. um, we're, we could also talk about decentralizing Ethereum. There's, mm -hmm. uh, there's always this question of, is Ethereum centralized around Vitalik? How do we decentralize Ethereum? Hmm. Yeah, well, actually, I think there has been a huge amount of progress in decentralizing Ethereum already. Yeah. Like, for example, if you just look at all of the uh, concrete governance actions that happened in the last 12 months, um, number one, like a lot of the features in the Constantinople hard forks that are launching in January basically happened without me. Yeah. Uh, number two, issuance reduction from 3 Ether to 2 Ether, which is going into Constantinople. I was not involved at all. Uh, number three, the um, Ethereum uh, quote 1.x stuff, these uh, short-term scalability improvements that are going on to the main chain before we can switch over to sharding. That whole effort started without my involvement at all. Uh -huh. um, the efforts um, even around like Casper um, and sharding, like I'm heavily involved in writing the spec, but the actual implementation is being uh, done by something like five different teams that um, are all like basically doing the code and uh, that are all increasingly actively uh, contributing to the development of the spec. So, I mean, I would not have been able to confidently say this 18 months ago, but I really do feel like the community is kind of capable of acting autonomously at this point. That's really you know? powerful. I mean, that's definitely not to say that I'm looking at disappearing. That's <laughs> like... Uh, that's the thing that the trolls generally tend to interpret me saying yeah. when I say things like this, but I'm definitely not disappearing. Well, so flipping that, what's exciting you and what is keeping you busy? Hmm. Can I ask a point on that? So you, you've talked about, and I think this is a really interesting point, and you've talked about a lot of things that have progressed kind of without you having, having to put your, your hands into it or get involved or manage it. Um, my, my question, and a lot of what I hear the, the trolls that you're referring to talk about is, if something was to go wrong and essentially we came to something that looked like the Bitcoin hard fork in 2017 of do we expand the blocks or do we do something else? 
Um, the argument is a lot of people would look to figures, be it, be it you or be it somebody else from the early Ethereum Foundation. Do you think that do you feel confident um, or do you, would you feel confident in the future that the Ethereum community could solve something that came to loggerheads like that without you or somebody else from the foundation? I'm sure that when the time comes to it, it will be able to. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I guess it's not been battle tested with that, and I guess, and are you okay with it forking? Like, what, what is like? I guess it's head and heart situation, right? Because that is a possibility. I feel like Ethereum is less likely to uh, fork than uh, something like uh, uh, Bitcoin with uh, BCH and BSV and so forth is, um, because. Uh, First of all, in the Ethereum community at this point, we've been fairly clear ahead of time what the kind of goals and technical values of the project are. Yeah. And so there is this kind of British-style unwritten constitution <laughs> that uh, includes things like you know proof-of-stake, sharding, uh, the uh, extents to which we value things like immutability, the extent to which we value simplicity versus functionality, and so on and so forth. It's almost like you never wrote down the principles, but they're there and understood. Yeah, I mean, uh, many of them are written down, but it's, uh, I mean, this is kind of why I use this uh, British constitution as an analogy, right? Like, it's the, the idea that exactly it's all in different places. Interesting. So what's keeping you excited at the moment? Because you said um, if, if, if it would function without you, but you're not going away, what is keeping you busy and what's exciting you? Is it the, the layer two stuff? Is it the sharding? What's, where, where are you focusing? I'm definitely spending a lot of time on uh, layer one uh, Casper and sharding. I've also been spending quite a bit of time on layer two stuff. I continue helping out a lot with Plasma. I uh, came up with um, a lot of the ideas that went into a Plasma Prime, which is the latest uh, implementation of Plasma. I um, also uh, continue to be uh, fairly involved in the uh, zero-knowledge uh, proof stuff. So I uh, wrote up that kind of example spec of a uh, Stark-based accumulator, and that's... Uh, Basically, a similar technology to Plasma Prime, except without the dependence on RSA groups and without the trusted setups. Well, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. So, there is definitely a lot of th uh, things on the technical layer that excite me. Um, another thing that um, has been exciting me recently is also just the fact that more and more stuff is actually existing. <laughs> so. Even something like Maker, for example, right? Like you have the DAI, which is this stable coin. And it launched, you know, retrospectively at the perfect time. It launched right at the peak of the ETH bubble. Yeah. And it has survived a 91% decrease in the price of its um, underlying collateral. Wow. And the DAI has just been, you know, staying at $1, very, very stable all the way through. Wow. I hadn't hadn't considered that, but it's really interesting to see these um, public experiments continue to exist and continue mm -hmm. to sort of function yeah. in the way that they do. Yeah, another experiment I'm looking forward to seeing play through is Augur. So this is the prediction market on Ethereum, and you know, contrary to naysayers, it actually is seeing significant usage. There was um, over one million dollars um, at one point that was bet on the 2018 U.S. election, yeah. and there was this interesting uh, uh, kind of glitch uh, that will lead to a very interesting test of the platform, which is that the te the actual text of the question in the prediction market said something like, which party will control the um, house right after the election? Yeah. And the intent of the question was clear. It's who's going to win the house, and the yeah. answer is Democrats. But if you try to answer it literally, it's like, well, uh, the house really only turns over its ownership a bit after the election, so the day after the Republicans still have it, and so the Republicans should win, or it's ambiguous. Yes. And one guy actually bet tens of thousands of dollars on basically the idea that uh, the Augur Oracle, which is this uh, decentralized oracle, this other interesting part of the platform, um, actually th that determines what the actual answers to the questions are, will bet like either Republican or ambiguous. Wow. And, and so, yeah, so reporting is, um, I believe, going to happen next month. And so that's when this uh, decentralized Augur Oracle is actually going to make a vote. Mm -hmm. And we'll be able to see what kind of answers it gives. And it'll be really interesting to watch. It's going to be interesting for sure. Colin, what, what do you think um, is up and coming? And do you have any questions for Vitalik on that? Well, specifically on Augur, and I guess more generally, there's a lot of things that have come up. Augur has been criticized by a lot of people for 
potentially bringing out things that we don't want to see, hit markets and those types of things. But there's lots of other potential applications where the properties of a blockchain are very, very positive for people who are doing things that otherwise wouldn't have done those because of fear of them being overturned or, or being found out who they are. Uh, is that something you worry about? And have you ever had kind of an Oppenheimer moment about that? There's de definitely are things that I do worry about. Yeah. Um, then, of course, there is the question of like what, how, what kinds of things can we practically do to uh, minimize the risk that blockchains will be used for things that we don't want to see them used for. Yeah. And there are definitely extents to which you just can't do anything, but there are extents to which I think you can do a lot, not even on the technical side, but more on the community side. So um, as one example of this, if you look at Zcash and Monero, Monero gets used on darknet markets a lot, and Zcash barely gets used on them at all. And whereas, like in my technical opinion, Zcash's privacy is considerably superior to that of Monero. Um, and if you ask why, well, the answer basically is that you know, Zuko, uh, the founder of Zcash, uh, does a lot of kind of public signaling where he basically says that you know this coin is meant for kind of humanitarian things that are good for the world, like protecting people in Venezuela, mm -hmm. and you know not for like trading fentanyl or whatever. And Indeed. it turns out that like. Him saying things like that basically leads to the criminal underground not trusting Zcash. Interesting, and, because they don't understand the detail of the technology. Yeah, like they you know, kind of get the clue that you know this is not the not the platform, and especially not the community that will be welcoming to them. And to some extent, this can have quite a bit of an impact. And I know the COO uh, Jack Gavigan at Zcash has spent quite a lot of time educating policymakers on precisely how it works and some of the mm -hmm. benefits of privacy. And I think that was behind some of Colin's question, which is yeah. actually privacy can be really, really good for the individual, and arguably we have too little of it. Yeah. So how do you uh, imagine yourself um, in, in 20, 30 years' time not doing what Tim Berners-Lee has just done and gone, oh, it, it's not what I wanted it to be? I mean, I guess you can't prevent that. Now you're decentralizing yourself a little bit, mm -hmm. but um, there's. Do you think community is a big part of that, and, and can you do more to foster it? Community is definitely a big part of it in the initial stages. There are limits to the extents to which we can control things, especially very far down the line. Yeah, because. At some point, if you're successful, your community expands so big that it just has to include all the deplorables just as a matter of numbers. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely the point at which you have to uh, kind of care about the, um, layers other than just the uh, community layer. Yeah. Um, but in the beginning, it definitely, I think, uh, does make a big difference what applications you talk about, what kinds of uh, things you focus on first, what kinds of things you deliberately try to foster. Uh -huh. And uh, I actually feel like we've done a very good job of that. Like, yeah. if you even just look at something like, you know, like Ethereum supporters on Twitter versus many other kinds of cryptocurrency community communities on Twitter, like, uh -huh. just look, you know, the, the differences are significant and visible. The armies are quite different, aren't they? Indeed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the hordes, the hordes and masses. Um, Colin, anything else before we get into twenty nineteen predictions? Well, no, something something in, and kind of ties in with the next point. Um, if we kind of classify two thousand seventeen, a lot of the what happened in Ethereum was driven around ICOs, um, and then kind of finished the year with cats, and we love the cats. Um, then you talked about things like Augur and things like um, uh, I'm even spacing uh, MakerDAO. Uh, what what is kind of the next application set or set, things that you're looking at and you're going, wow, that, that is quite interesting, whether it's technically or economically or elsewise? Next set of applications. Um, there is a, a lot of the non-financial stuff I find interesting. Right. So there was this one platform in Singapore, and I recently learned that there are a bunch of equivalent platforms in other countries where they use the blockchain to... Like verify that different kinds of certificates, so things like university degrees, like identity stuff, and so forth, have not been revoked. Yeah, and that's one of those interesting examples of my kind of idea that blockchains are something parallel to cryptography. Yeah, because if you want to prove that something has been issued, you don't need a blockchain; you just need a signature. Yes, but. To prove that something has not been revoked, there's no such thing as a mathematical proof that says that something did not happen. And so <laughs> for that, you actually have to scan the blockchain. Interesting. 
So you've got that persistence over time that mm-hmm. it remains true. Um, and, and that's always kind of been the issue around proving somebody's identity. I can prove mm-hmm. a certificate, but is it still valid? There's a whole exactly. bunch of use cases that, that come off the back of that. And those data-driven use cases probably make more sense in the short term than a lot of the financial ones. Is, is, that, a, is that a fair test? I think um, on the financial side, there is um, a large category of stuff that makes sense, but it's more in this uh, kind of open permissionless uh, sector of, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies, MakerDAO, DAI, stablecoins, uh, decentralized exchanges. Institutional finance will definitely take a bit longer because you know, finance is inherently a more risk-averse sector for good reason. And uh, in- institutions are also uh, m- more risk-averse for good reason. And so that's something that will take more time to uh, come um, on-chain. Whereas the thing with the non-financial applications is that even if the blockchain completely breaks, well, you still have all the guarantees you had before. It's yeah. like actually not that big a deal. So I think it's great that we're seeing those use cases first. So on that, um, have you got any 2019 predictions? What do you think we'll see next year? Obviously, Casper will get mm-hmm. launched. Yeah, um, Casper is definitely one of the big things I'm excited about. Plasma is a big thing I'm excited about. Yeah. Um, Snaps, uh, ZK Snark applications, is uh, something I'm very excited about. And Ooh. it's something people are actively starting to work on already. Wow. Even ZK Starks, I think, seeing preliminary use cases next year might be interesting. Wow. Um, so those are, those are four or five big predictions there. Colin, anything before we, uh, before we go? No, I'm just very eager to see it all happen, and, and we hope you'll come back and talk to us as they evolve and, and as the Ethereum ecosystem evolves. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to it. All right, thank you, Colin. Thank you, Vitalik, very much for being on Blockchain Insider. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by R3 Blockchain, not just for financial services. Tons of industries can reap major benefits, including insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, you name it. Discover the potential of blockchain for your business with R3's Corda platform. R3's Corda platform offers privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus. Plus, it includes the mission-critical features every complex business needs, including the world's only blockchain application firewall, um, the Corda platform. Blockchain for every business and every industry. Head over to r3.com to learn more. So that was the interview with Vitalik. Colin, uh, we had fun with that one. We had great fun with that one. It was weird you being on a laptop. If anybody's watched the video, you can see Vitalik looking at the laptop. What he's actually looking at is Colin listening intently and then trying to follow up with a question that we kept ignoring. It was kind of fun. Yeah, waving my hands around to get Simon to shut up so I could ask a question. (laughs) (laughs) That was always fun and always a challenge. Always. Um, if you like this, of course, um, coming up soon on Blockchain Insider, uh, not only do we have the regular news and views, um, we're going to be doing our crypto 2019 predictions more broadly soon. So make sure you send us your crypto 2019 predictions at Blockchain Insider, uh, B-Chain Insider on Twitter or uh, podcast at 11fs.com. Or just rock up at Devonshire Square. Yeah, if you know where that is in London. <laughs> or you can uh, find the building once you get here. I sure couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to be, it's all going to be fine. You're going to go back. You're going to hang out near your field. I'm going to wave through my computer at you. It's it's going to be a beautiful thing. We're going to do many more episodes like this in 2019. I really just hope the price starts to rally back to 100K is so my prediction's right. And that is not investment advice. <laughs> <laughs> None of it is. <laughs> uh, Alrighty. Um, just as a quick reminder, those of you uh, who haven't heard of us, we are 11FS and we do all kinds of awesome stuff. You can find out more at 11FS.com. Um, but essentially, we help people build stuff. Uh, if you want to see an example of that, well... You'll have to come talk to us. Um, and Square. Yeah. <laughs> Podcast at 11fs.com. Uh, you can find me at SY Taylor. Where can people find you? You can find me at Colin G. Platt oh. on the Twitter. <laughs> wow, you even say that in French now. Wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for listening. We'll have more coming at you very, very soon. <laughs>